Latitude Media, podcast at the frontier of climate technology. So there's yet another report out showing how the plastics industry and the fossil fuel industry lied for 50 years about the effectiveness of recycling. Are either of you in an existential crisis about what to put in the recycling bin as well? Yes. Well, my husband like puts like the outside wrappers of Reese's cups, that like little tiny piece of metal, he like puts it, rolls it up and puts it in there like they're going to ever use that. And it just sticks <laughs> to the bottom. And it's like, no, we don't have to recycle all of those things. That's too small. What's the most frustrating thing you need to wash out when you recycle it? Honey. Yes. Mayonnaise too. Mayonnaise is bad. Honey dissolves pretty easily though. Yeah. We just had some that was really old, I guess. So it had the the crust. And I, it was the same thing. I'm like, how much water and hot water do I pour? Anyway, I probably spent too much time thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, kindergarten me from the early 90s who thought I was saving the planet by setting up a recycling program is crying. <laughs> this is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Can a couple trillion dollars feel small? Global investments in the energy transition from the build-out of factories and power projects to project finance and government debt hit nearly $1.8 trillion last year. That's almost as big as the GDP of South Korea. It's nearly 20% more than the year before, and it's nearly eight times more than a decade ago. But, and there's always a but, right? We are astonishingly behind what's needed to stay on a net zero trajectory this decade. And Catherine Hamilton and Shalini Ramanathan join me this week to talk about what's growing, what's lagging, and what the trillion-dollar scale means at the ground level. Then geoengineering is nudging closer to the mainstream of scientific and environmental discourse. Are we giving up or just being realistic? And of course, we'll wrap with our forecast of what might be ahead. It's all coming right up. I want to take a brief moment to talk about the new season of the Big Switch podcast. We've been working on this for the last six months. We're so excited to bring it to you. Our production team at Latitude Media has been working for years with Dr. Melissa Lott and the team at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy uh, to make the Big Switch. It's a narrative show about how to rebuild our energy systems. And we are back with a five-part series exploring the supply chains behind lithium-ion batteries and the very complicated economic and political forces that come as batteries take over the world. So in this season, we break batteries apart, go to mining operations, manufacturing facilities, recycling plants, and talk to some of the most prominent experts about the pitfalls and promise of our expanding battery-based energy economy. And you'll hear the trailer a bit later in the show. So if this sounds like something you want to listen to, find The Big Switch anywhere you get your podcasts. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She is in the fine state of Virginia. How's everything in Virginia? It's great. We don't have as much snow, uh, which is great because next week is Nehruk in D.C. And it's usually really bad weather then. And I'm hoping that it'll be just nice and cold and sunny. Shalini Ramanathan is the director of origination at Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. She's out in Austin, Texas. How is Texas? This is the right time of year to be in Austin. It is spring. It is beautiful. It is too easy to forget that summer is coming. It's really lovely right now. I like a fierce, long winter. So I will not be living in Texas anytime soon. <laughs> Let's talk money, not weather. Bloomberg New Energy Finance is out with its annual Energy Transition Trends Report, and it's a mixed bag. I can remember back in 2007 when I first interviewed uh, Michael Liebrich, who started New Energy Finance, 
and he later sold it to Bloomberg. And it was at the Renewable Energy Finance Forum on Wall Street. And he had tracked at that time around $100 billion going into clean energy investment globally, which was a really impressive figure. It was enough money that a lot of Wall Street banks were taking notice, and it clearly showed that renewables were on this upward trajectory uh, in broader clean energy as well. But I remember him telling me that it needed to be a trillion dollars a year all the way back then. And it took us another 14 years for us to reach $1 trillion in global investment in 2021. Um, but in 2022, it jumped to $1.5 trillion. And then last year, we were at nearly $1.8 trillion. So uh, we're, we're picking up the pace here, but it's still not fast enough, as we will discuss a little bit later. So, so quick highlights here. Electrified transport surpassed renewables for the first time. Frontier tech like carbon removal and hydrogen are definitely seeing much stronger increases in investment flows, and nearly every region in the world saw a surge. So yay for that. But according to BNF, we need to be at $4.8 trillion every year between now and 2030. So uh, that's a lot of trillions. <laughs> Let's put these big numbers into context. Um, I want to start with some initial reactions to some of these figures, and then we'll drill down what it means for different sectors. Um, Shalini, optimistic take first. What kind of optimism do you draw from the report? Trillion just has a good ring to it. 1.8 trillion. You could almost, you could round up to 2 trillion. It's not quite enough, but I think we should take a moment. It's it's a big number. And uh, and in, included in that number is the fact that investment in energy transition is edging out investment in fossil fuel generation. That is the optimistic way to look at it, is we're investing, we're beginning to invest in the right things. Yeah, they tracked sort of four different categories. They looked at the energy transition investment, the clean energy supply chain investment, climate tech equity raising, and then debt issuance. And so one thing that really stuck out for me was the clean energy supply chain. And this is including equipment factories, metals production. It hit a new record and is set to surge even further. And to me, that says sort of the underpinnings of the transition are coming along. And I thought that was really great. Yeah, I, I drew that number out as well. And not only are we seeing an increase, a massive increase in investment, but that that's the only piece of the clean energy transition that's on track for a net zero scenario. So we're actually ahead of schedule in supply chain investments, particularly in solar batteries and EVs. So that is definitely a good piece of news. When I first saw this report and propose we talk about the numbers in here, I was really excited, like, oh, we're almost at $2 trillion. And then like a day later, news broke that Sam Altman from OpenAI is out trying to raise $7 trillion to expand chip manufacturing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, that that deflated the number a little bit. But still, $1.8 trillion is, is a big deal. So we see in the figures here that total investment flows continue to outpace investments in fossil fuel extraction. And we're definitely starting to see the impact. In fact, earlier this month, the Saudi-controlled oil company Aramco said it would halt capacity expansions because of its view, its long-term view on the energy transition. And the Saudi prince said, transitioning means that even our oil company, which used to be an oil company, now is just becoming an energy company. We hear that talk from oil executives. Sometimes they live up to it. A lot of the times they make some big proclamation and then slowly shift back to extraction exclusively. Um, Shalini, is this something we should take seriously? Yes, because this is about 
actual spending to develop capacity to meet future markets. Um, this is their business plan. This is not a press release. They're not announcing, you know, um, a laughably small investment in a solar company or something like that. They're actually talking about their core business and saying that they believe that their core business needs to transition to meet a diff- the needs of a different world. I think it's a, a big milestone. Yeah, a couple things. I agree with Shalini, but I also just keep in mind that their expansion was going to be to 13 million barrels a day, and now it's just going to be 12 million barrels a day. So it's not like it's going away anytime soon. Remember, they've used oil as as a euphemism, I would say, diplomatic tool over the decades. And now they are shifting to something they're, they're they're definitely investing in renewables, but also materials and mines. And remember, mines are also extractive. So when we think about what are they good at, what are they going to do, there's some still some extraction that's going to be taking place. The issue is, what is that going to be going to? And as Shalini says, what's the business model for that? So I think we take them seriously, but we also need to be a little skeptical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's, same, it's the same caveat um, from our discussion around peak fossil fuel investment that was outlined by IEA last year. It doesn't mean that fossil fuel uh, extraction or consumption is going to decline precipitously. It just means that we've reached the peak and that we hopefully will see a a steep decline, but we're more likely going to see a gradual decline uh, past 2030. I mean, I see this announcement very cynically, personally. I mean, you look at the announcement from Shell and BP in recent years talking about how they're becoming energy transition companies. And then, you know, when oil when oil earnings were high enough, they scaled back all those ambitions and investors put a lot of pressure on them and they just go back to the same thing. And I just don't really see any, any, any evidence that most of these companies are going to change, no matter what they claim in the press, no matter what kind of, you know, big presentation they make on stage. They just keep going back to the same thing. So, I mean, I'm very cynical about it. Certainly, when the Saudi prince comes out and says um, something like that, we should take notice. But we're not seeing a divestment in fossil fuels. We are seeing them sort of halt new capacity. So I think that's very important. Still, it is a big piece of news. It's worth noting that the returns are very good for oil and gas right now. And they are, generally speaking, and obviously energy transition covers a lot of different kinds of businesses, but there are businesses in the world of energy transition um, like solar and wind that are becoming commodities, right? Wind and solar are becoming commodities where the returns are uh, not anything like what you get in oil and gas. And so I think this is the dilemma for oil and gas companies. It's the dilemma for you know our economies in a lot of ways is, you know, uh, how if you're running an oil and gas company, you have an obligation to your shareholder to maximize value. And I, you know, I think we would all agree you have an obligation to the planet to not do harm. I think all of these large oil majors would be happy to shift to energy transition investments um, if the returns were similar. That's one of the key challenges. Um, and unlocking capital, frankly, doesn't just have to do with oil and gas. Yeah, and I would say Aramco is certainly structurally different than a Shell or a BP because they have a state behind them, right? So the state can can take political and economic decisions that are quite different than uh, than a corporation could take. Well, let's talk about some of the numbers, the other numbers from the report. So I want each of you to pick a number that illustrates a trend that you're seeing play out on the ground right now. We're going to be throwing around some big, big numbers. So let's try to make it a little bit more real 
for folks. Um, Catherine, what do you have? Any any numbers jump out at you that kind of reflect what you're actually seeing play out? Yeah, so I have two numbers. One that someone gave me. So I reached out to Albert Chung, who is an analyst, a longtime analyst at Bloomberg. He's brilliant. And I said, what do you care the most about this report? And he said he was struck by the global offshore wind investment reaching a record $76.7 billion, which was an almost 80% increase in offshore wind. Now, there was a bit of of a decline from the onshore segment, but the offshore went went up pretty quickly and that's that's remarkable because the as we have talked about on the show offshore has had some issues and it's good to see that there is still major investment in that sector i wonder how much of that money comes from uh, companies preparing projects and then canceling them Oh yeah, and China's still the biggest market there. Um, but but yeah, there is still there's still some some issues, some policy issues in the U.S. Um, but there are some projects going forward too. So it's it's good to know that they are that they're in strong position. The number that I was really interested in, um, because uh, as you all know on the show as well, that I've been obsessed with interconnection and with the grid investment, and this kind of links back to the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the distribution grid investment. Um, was greater than transmission investment. And so distribution investment was about $173 billion where in 2023, whereas transmission was $137 billion. And certainly um, transmission is so important and in the U.S. has been linked to, and U.S. is a huge market for all of these um, investments, $87 billion dollars undergrounding, storm resilience, upgrading for renewable energy, um, and all this increased demand through EV charging and data centers. Um, And yet, if you look on the ground with the Inflation Reduction Act and how much more we need to do, you know, the the investment tax credit for transmission fell out of that piece of legislation. And at some point, we're going to need additional investment in this country if we really expect to do the transition in, you know, as quickly as we we want to, and as with as many renewable energy projects out there in the queue. Yeah, and on the power grid side, I mean, what you see is a radical increase in investments in the power grid from about 2020 onward. And obviously, we need to probably double that to accommodate the amount of clean energy that we're putting on grids around the world, but definitely a noticeable shift. Shalini? So my number from that report is uh, on electrified transport, um, which the report said is $634 billion of the total $1.8 trillion, so about a third. And it feels like electrified transport is is happening. You know, it is um, it is a trend that it's well on its way. And there's been so much discussion, uh, including on this show, the last time we talked about slow EV sales in the U.S. And sometimes I think we forget about the rest of the world. And uh, for example, um, electric scooters and, you know, two-wheelers, as they call them, are very popular in, in China and India. And so that's also electrified transportation. Um, I think this is interesting because um, one of the big success stories in in my eyes in terms of of companies is a company that most Americans probably haven't heard of. It's BYD. 
um, which stands for Build Your Dream. And they're now the, they became at the end of last year, the leading seller of EVs. They edged out Tesla last year for that title. And Elon Musk has called for trade barriers to protect Tesla from BYD because they have re- they're coming on strong. And I, I read on a car blog that BYD's SEAL model is, it's more like a food truck than a gourmet meal. But, you know, for a lot of people, a, a meal from a food truck is, is just fine. And so I think that BYD and, um, and its success is really a part of this, uh, of that number, that, that 1.8 trillion number. And BYD gets a ton of state subsidies. Like they're one, they're one of the big beneficiaries of, of China um, state spending. But there's just a lot to admire in their business. They uh, they couldn't get room on container ships to get their cars to Europe. So they just chartered their own vessel. Like they kind of seem to not take no for an answer. Um, you know, books have been written about Toyota manufacturing and how great it is. Toyota is partnering with BYD um, on electric vehicles. And that's how much respect BYD has in the industry for what they've been able to accomplish. So, you know, we'll see what happens. And obviously there's a lot of issues around, um, you know, having more onshoring of battery manufacturing here in the U.S. and concerns about the internet of things and cars and the data gathering and having that um, at, at a company like BYD that that um, that does come from China. So there's a lot of complexity here, but I just, I think the fact that electrified transport is one third of the, of the amount invested in energy transition is, is astounding. Yeah, and you know who really invested in their grid a decade ago and made it really big and really strong? That would be China. <laughs> so they've already done a lot of that and, are, and and now can just become this massive market for renewables and electrification. But it really points out that the grid is the gift that keeps giving, right? You build it out, it's hard, and then you can electrify other <laughs> other sectors. And And this is another one where you don't see electric vehicles on in, really reflected in the numbers until about 2014. And then it starts gaining an increasing share of the total investment. And then in 2022 and 2023, it expands rapidly. And we saw a, an almost 40% increase in you know investments in electrified transport last year. And so I think that there's no turning back now. Um, if you think about how big the battery and EV market is, um, it's, it certainly will be the dominant force in the energy transition. So that has been a decade-long trend, and it was really the last two years when we saw the most uh, momentum. Um, I'll mention just one other number that jumped out to me, and that was that uh, the U.S. was second in overall funding, you know, government debt, uh, 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 total project finance, et cetera, when you sort of bring everything together. But we were a leader in uh, venture capital and private equity. And I think it shows that although, you know, we saw a significant dip in the last year because of financial headwinds, uh, America is still very much a leader in supporting the front edge of the energy transition, particularly through venture capital. And um, we just have a really rich tapestry of companies and entrepreneurs and investors in this country that sets us apart. Um, the big question is how how do we compete on a commercial level when China is throwing far more money at scaling than we are, um, even with record IRA spending? But that number definitely jumped out at me, that there, there's one area that the U.S. is still beating China and other there's that, and that is uh, venture capital and private equity. Yeah, it was interesting to me that um, it's been harder to do IPOs. So those were down 65%, and that's like largely because of interest rates. 
But that's starting to switch around. You can see that as you see more deals happening. And also utilities are the largest um, sector raising debt right now. And that also makes a huge amount of sense if you think about who has to transition and all those utilities uh, raising debt to try to invest in their own transition. Yeah. And we talked about investment in the clean energy supply chains. I was surprised by the numbers, but also by the Bloomberg prediction that um, the supply chain investment is uh, projected to increase 66% from 2023 to, to this year. And I think that really just shows the impact of the IRA and the power of strong incentives. Um, is it enough to compete with what China has built? We'll see. But uh, we do, uh, Stephen, you're absolutely right. We do have the advantage here of, you know, um, a strong entrepreneurial culture and a lot of new development. And we'll see if the IRA, with the incentives in the IRA, if we can keep some of that technology and really develop supply chains here. So let's go on to some other numbers that jumped out. Um, Is anything surprising, a trend that you didn't expect or that accelerated faster than you thought? Shalini? The market for IPOs and re- reverse mergers had cooled off more, even more than I thought. I, I knew it wasn't a great year for that, but, um, you know, um, equity financing down 34% and down also the year before that. I think we're really seeing what, you know, increased interest rates, you know, the effect that has on businesses and the ability to exit. And, and there really haven't been that many great exits in climate tech recently. I mean, there's no huge exits to speak of in the last few years. Yeah, I think the SPAC market especially, I think a lot of companies that use that um, you know, that uh, pathway to, to IPOing, they really had massive growth stories. And that wasn't underpinned by actual performance or by the technology um, curve and where they were on it. So I think it just sort of shows the mismatch, right, of, of really early, essentially what are early stage <laughs> clean tech companies um, IPOing because they, you know, they're predicting that it's going to be easy. Um, and it turns out it isn't. But there are more strategic investments. So I think it was important for that to settle down. That seemed like it wasn't great to have companies that were not ready to be public. And instead, we're seeing much more corporate investment, much more strategics coming in and saying, this is something we want to put funding toward and grow it the way it should be grown. So what's bringing you pessimism out of these numbers? Any cautious takeaways? Uh, Catherine, what about you? So we need three times more than the almost two trillion a year to make it to net zero. So we need to be at almost five trillion a year of investment. And I think we're on track, honestly. And there's some sectors that are doing better than others, but there's a lot more to do. So it seems that some of these investments need to come back up. Some of the maybe onshore wind needs to come back up. Uh, We need to increase things like geothermal and uh, hydropower investments. And, you know, we have to do much more of it in order to get to net zero and to keep us down below 1.5 degrees centigrade. We need to be at 5 trillion this year through 2030 in order to keep us on a net zero trajectory. I mean, I, I know that you're a very optimistic person, and I think that the two nearly $2 trillion number is like a big deal, but um, I think we're way off here. I, I definitely took a lot of pe- pessimism from that. I did, you guys have both convinced me that, you know, um, rooting for the $1.8 when it really needs to be $5 trillion. 
<laughs> my optimism may maybe uh, may not be very useful here. Um, really, the capital is there, right? I think the issue is how do we get um, the there there are policy incentives. You know, what's missing? Why isn't more capital rushing in? And you know, I think it's some of these underlying factors that we've talked about before, like like transmission, you know, like permitting. Um, I think you uh, certainly can't get, you know, you can't get more, for example, big EV charging stations um, in places where the grid isn't strong. So we need to fix some of these underlying things to unlock more capital. I'm Dr. Melissa Watt, and I'm the host of The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild our energy systems. Batteries are finding their way into everything, from cars and heavy equipment to the electric grid. But scaling up production to meet the demands of a net zero economy is complicated, and it's contentious. If every country says we need to own the entire supply chain because we want all of those economic benefits, it's going to make the clean energy transition so much harder. In a new five-part series, we're digging into the global battery supply chain, from mining to manufacturing, and we're asking what gets mined, traded, and consumed on the road to decarbonization. If we think climate change is the existential threat facing our planet, we have to be having a broad conversation about where we want to get the minerals that build these products. Listen to The Big Switch from Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, available on February 28th, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn to geoengineering now. This is a topic that is suddenly getting way more serious consideration and funding. Um, We're in this weird spot right now. We have, as we just talked about, huge amounts of money going into the energy transition from all angles. And it's been enough to narrow the range of possibilities for warming. We've actually shaved off some of the more catastrophic scenarios in the last few years. But as we heard, it's not nearly enough. Um, and more than doubling our investments every year starting now is probably not going to happen. And that's why geoengineering is on the table for many serious people. The field of geoengineering features a very wide category of approaches to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or oceans or blocking the sun with aerosols or cloud brightening or even placing a giant object in front of the sun. And up until the last couple of years, it was limited to the edges of academic discourse. Um, But suddenly, governments are considering guidelines and budgets for studies. Research labs are doing real-world testing. Venture capitalists are throwing dollars in. And environmental groups are starting to take it seriously. Corbin Hare at ENE News reported that the Environmental Defense Fund, which has supported the idea of geoengineering research since 2011, convened dozens of scientists and funders to talk seriously about responsible guidelines. And he quoted John Holdren, who was Obama's science advisor, who said, it's a recognition by one of the country's most important environmental organizations that geoengineering is something that can't be ignored. We just can't hide our heads in the sand and pretend it will go away. And it's something that needs serious attention by smart people inside and outside of government. Um, And in that same week, the Wall Street Journal had a big feature on all the testing that's happening around the world, including an experiment partially funded by the U.S. government. And I thought this quote from the piece was telling um, from Danielle Vissoni from Cornell University, who said, now we're at the point where the choice isn't between a yes or no about um, doing uh, geoengineering, but between making an informed decision 
versus making an uninformed decision. So let's react. Um, where are we in the discourse around geoengineering? Catherine, why is this being taken seriously all of a sudden? Yeah. So first, I just I, I want to let you know, I when I mentioned this to my husband, I said, do you know anything about geoengineering? Because you sent me this, you sent me the, the topic. And he said, all I can think of is space billboards. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said that he and Senator Markey combated a plan decades ago to try to keep space billboards from being in the air. So that if you went outside on Valentine's Day with your honey to look at Orion, you didn't see a swoosh with just do it on in the sky, right? That that um that that, that would be somehow protected, that space would be protected. But I did reach out to Dan Fizioni, and he is right now at a conference to discuss this very topic. And I sort of try to dive in and figure out what does this mean? And he sent me a primer that basically gave an example of what this um, this issue is of solar geoengineering. So in 1991, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines erupted in the largest volcanic eruption of the 20th century. It sent 17 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. And what it did is it oxidized into aerosols, which then reflected the sunlight. And for the next two years... Global te temperatures were reduced by approximately half a degree Celsius. That was huge. So what does that mean? That means, well, that is called stratospheric aerosol. And so you could look at this as stratospheric aerosol injection. Are there things that you can put into the air that would cool the planet? There's something else called marine cloud brightening, which is spraying sea salt aerosols into clouds to increase the reflectivity or brightness. And there's something called cirrus cloud thinning, which would um, thin or remove cirrus clouds, which have a net warming impact on the planet. But all of these things, while it's really important to think think about what do they mean. They carry enormous risks politically and scientifically. And so the question is, how do we think about this in a way that moves the science forward and our understanding of the science, our understanding of the benefits of the science, of the timing of when would you do something like this? But then also, what are the risks? What are the risks to local areas? What are the risks to farmers? There are just a number of things that this kind of technology could change, and you have to understand the risks. And then also, you have to set up a structure, because if you have a bunch of people out there doing this, you could start changing our planet uh, without any controls. And so there's sort of a couple different levels. One is the scientific level of both benefits and risk. And then there's also the political level of how do we have some sort of agreement, almost like an, an arms agreement to figure out how do we manage something like this? Yeah, for sure. And I want to talk more about some of those risks. I have my own list of things that potentially worry me. Those two solutions that you talked about, the stratospheric aerosol injection, which again is using um, sulfur dioxide or something else to reflect sunlight away from Earth or the marine cloud brightening to improve the, the reflectivity of clouds. Those are being considered by the White House. The White House recently issued a report, I think it was last summer, saying that we need to consider studying those two methods, that at least the questions around the research are important enough that the government should embark on a much bigger research effort. Um, how big of a deal is that, Catherine, that the White House weighed in on this? I know it was congressionally mandated, but they did sort of have a positive reaction to doing more research. 
Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is that, you know, they want to understand what the climate and environmental impacts are. They have huge climate goals, right? So they have they want to understand what are the impacts of this solar radiation modification, basically. And then what are the potential societal outcomes and ecological consequences? So they are also one of their big thrusts is to is equity and making sure that, you know, this that whatever we do to forward the climate transition, that we're not impacting negatively on some communities. And so looking at societal outcomes and it's pretty much across economic sectors anyway. And then finally, how do we do this? As I mentioned before, how do we do it in cooperation among international partners? Because that's going to be crucial, whether it's through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whether you, you know, that's like the large organization, but maybe you set up something like the Montreal Protocol that takes one issue. You, ha- you have sort of an issue-based international group that can, that can create some kind of boundaries to what we do when we find out what is possible with this technology. Shalini, what do you make of the conversation shift around these methods of changing the atmosphere? I think it's there's widespread recognition that we're not on track. Let's just call it. We're not on track to keep um, average temperature 1.5 degrees Celsius below pre-industrial levels. That's the threshold that we've been talking about for a long time, and we're very likely to exceed it, um, perhaps you know, perhaps by a lot. And it, I think that there's now a sense that um, even among those of us like like me, I'll put my hand up, who absolutely believe in deployment of the technologies we have. You know, we have no choice; we have to do that. Um, but we also may need something else. And I think that this, uh, the geoengineering is uh, perhaps along with things like uh, carbon, carbon sequestration, that's something else that, you know, just switching to green alternatives isn't happening quickly enough. Catherine, what's your personal take on this? Like, do you have any r- reflexive reaction to geoengineering? A reflective reaction. Um, <laughs> no, this is terrifying to me. When I started reading more about it, and I was really quite ignorant um, about it, I just kind of heard it in, about it in broad bushes. I thought, what does this mean? What will it mean if this is what we resort to? So, you know, we can't stop doing what we're already doing and deploying as quickly as we can with all these technologies we already have that we know will work. We have to stop the bad stuff that we know is bad, right? But then at what point do you say, all right, when do we know that we have to deploy something like this? Is it when we've gone past the 1.5 degrees? Is it, you know, is there a tipping point? Well, guess what? You don't know if there's a tipping point unless you're in it or it's in the rear view mirror. And at that point, you can't, this stuff can't refreeze glaciers. You know, this is not the answer to that. So part of this is this sort of ends up being one of those things you would do in like just the end. <laughs> And yet we have to know that it's there and that you can deploy it safely. And you're not just having people desperately doing it when they're being, you know, impacted severely by climate issues, have people in desperation because it's not very expensive to do something like this. It's cheaper. If you start having people deploying stuff like this without knowing what the what the repercussions are um, to the ecology and to humans, I don't know what will happen. So I agree that we really have to study it. And I think there are serious bodies to wit. This gentleman that I reached out to was going to a conference in Europe uh, and couldn't speak with me personally because they're trying to wrestle with this. So I think it's right to wrestle with it, but it's also terrifying to think of having to use it. 
It, this reminds me, the whole discussion reminds me of um, the ongoing parallel debate about AI, artificial intelligence. And I think we can all agree it has huge potential to make human life better. It also has potential to be used for you know really terrible ends. And the discussions around AI um, are around who has the right to regulate it, you know, what is it? Is it just do companies self police, or do we need third party regulation? How do you enforce that? How do you stop the rogue actors in AI in in geoengineering from doing um, something that you know isn't necessarily as much in the public interest as their own? I, you know, I think these are big issues that um, we have to grapple with. But it feels like it's here to stay, though, right? It might just we might just be talking about it, but I don't think we're going to be, be in a position to take it off the table anytime soon. I think that's a great parallel. Um, There are a few things that worry me. One is that this is just a big distraction. As you both said, we need to deploy and we need to deploy fast. And almost nobody would disagree that we have about 80% of the technologies today across the electricity sector, industry, and transportation to decarbonize and decarbonize fast. Um, if we were really putting our shoulders into it. And so whatever conversation that we have about geoengineering has to recognize that like we have most of the technologies and solutions here right now that are deployable and being deployed to fix this problem. I, I, I just I also worry that this is a distraction because you have high profile billionaires who like to throw around money and get press coverage um, who are interested in some of these solutions. And you know, they can start to back startups that are moving way too quickly. Also, there's a big question of like, what happens if you're just masking warming? <laughs> you know, if you if you if you stop the geoengineering experiment and suddenly warming comes roaring back, what happens then? We're also creating a new atmosphere, right? Like this is we we are already playing with one of the most consequential ex- science experiments in history. Um, now we're just adding new elements to it. And so you could potentially damage the ozone layer. You could shift weather patterns in other unexpected ways. There could be drastic negative consequences. You sort of create the same jumbled up mess that climate change is already um, creating with, without a lot of predictability. Uh, and Catherine, I think you alluded to geopolitical risk. I mean, what happens if countries are in conflict over how to use these techniques? That is a very real potential consequence. And once this is out in the real world, scientists can't really control it. So there are a lot of worries here, which isn't to say that we shouldn't put research dollars in place and talk on an international scale about how we do this responsibly. But it is a last-ditch effort. We cannot ignore that we have the most of the technologies today to solve the problem. And we can't rely on billionaires and venture capitalists to push this forward. Yeah. And as we do research and development, we have to figure out what does that look like? How do we do ethical R&D? How do we do, do we do larger scale experiments? Because those could have a bigger impact. And you know, the people who are already the most impacted and the least able to combat global warming, they're the ones that will suffer the most no matter what. Folks who want to put a lot of money into things like pulling, putting out vaccines or getting rid of malaria should also be thinking about what are some real climate solutions that don't involve changing our atmosphere, but that those people who are the most impacted by climate change and have the least resources to do so can actually make their lives better. 
this technology can't refreeze glaciers. It can't bring back extinct species and it can't deal with receding shoreline. So it, it isn't some, it is, there is no magic bullet for climate change. And this is also not a magic bullet for climate change. All right. That brings us to the end of the show to the forecast. And this is where we pick a story, something out in the news, something happening in our work lives, some observation that tells us something about the near or far future. Shalini, what's your forecast this week? So Shell announced that it's permanently closing six of its seven hydrogen refueling stations for passenger cars in California. And my forecast is that maybe this is, I hope, uh, the end of trying to make hydrogen-powered passenger cars happen because EVs are simply a better technology for that solution. And, uh, you know, it just shows how judicious the use of public dollars has to be. You know, I think the state of California has really tried to push um, hydrogen for passenger cars. And, you know, if something is just unlikely to ever work, then public dollars don't change that. Does it say something bigger about their investments in hydrogen or is it purely about these fueling stations and the use of hydrogen in cars. It's just about hydrogen use in cars. There aren't enough hydrogen-powered cars around. And because there aren't enough charging stations, but fundamentally, um, hydrogen-powered cars are just feel like a very niche offering. Yeah, we saw this play out with Toyota as well, which was all in on hydrogen vehicles and then made a switch into electric models behind some of its competitors. Yeah, the Toyota Marae, which is their hydrogen-powered passenger car, is not uh, taking over the streets. I haven't seen one in real life, and I bet very few people um, outside of pockets in California have. So uh, there are some technologies that don't deserve to scale. And I think hydrogen, green hydrogen, has all sorts of really promising applications like, um, you know, making ammonia, green ammonia with green hydrogen and you know, using that to uh, decrease um, emissions from the fertilizer industry. So there's a role for these, um, for these fuels, but everything doesn't work everywhere. Yeah, 56,000 fuel cell vehicles sold to date globally. So that's <laughs> 56,000 stranded assets. Got to feel bad for those people. <laughs> and fuel cells are really expensive. It, it, this is a tough technology. And I think it, it might work for heavy duty trucks. We'll see if um, advanced battery technology um, overtakes it. But uh, certainly for passenger vehicles, we have a good solution. It's called an electric vehicle. Catherine, what's your forecast? Yeah, you had to know that I was going to talk about interconnection again <laughs> because I'm, I'm really, really focused on it right now. So there was a new report that came out that RMI did, and it's about grid-enhancing technologies. So these are technologies that you put on the transmission grid for the most part that give you more visibility and more of an ability to, to see what's going on and react. Dynamic line readings are one of those. Um, and they found three things. This was just studying PJM. There was a report earlier that Brattle did studying – um, Kansas and Oklahoma that came up with similar findings, but this is in PJM, which has a huge interconnection queue problem. And what they found was that GETS, which is what you call grid-enhancing technologies, GETS could enable 6.6 .6 gigawatts of new solar, wind, and storage projects to interconnect by 2027. They found that they're significantly cheaper than 
other network upgrades, and that the, that those combined with the new generation could enable approximately a billion dollars annually in production cost savings across PJM. It is a huge thing. And I've been working on GETS for a while. There's some really good companies out there. I work with Line Vision to try to get policies that will say, yes, we understand you have to build transmission, but install GETS. Like, get an idea of where your conjecture congestion is? Where do you need the lines the most? Can you manage it with what you have so far? Get as the most amount of electrons out as you squeeze through the grid as you possibly can. And this report kind of really highlights that. So hopefully FERC will start moving on some of those rulemakings and really make this just part of the way of doing business. Also great acronym, by the way, GETS. I love that. Get it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a really central piece of how we're thinking about electric infrastructure in this country. We had Jen Downing um, from the Department of Energy on the show last week talking about how to make better use of the grid through virtual power plants. And she made the point that we've invested over a trillion dollars into the grid. Wouldn't we want to, instead of just building more stuff, make better use of that machine and gets our really crucial piece of that equation? Well, my story is about a trend that we discussed at the end of last year, and we're seeing more activity pick up around, and that is white hydrogen. That is geologic hydrogen. Um, we're seeing a lot of new developments in extraction, extraction of lithium, extraction of heat for geothermal using horizontal drilling techniques, and now extraction of geologic hydrogen. Maria Gallucci mentioned this at the end of the story, at the end of last year as a story to watch. And she was definitely right. Activity is picking up. Some estimates put 10 trillion tons of white hydrogen underground around the world. And if that's right, and it could be economically tapped, that would account for all the world's hydrogen use for hundreds of years. And just this month, a 30-person startup called Kalama just raised $245 million. The company was actually founded in 2019, so they've been working on this for a while. They're backed by Coastal Ventures and Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Actually, our investor, Prelude Ventures, invested them in them uh, last year. And the DOE, meanwhile, just recently said it's worth, it's investing $20 million in research into this field. And uh, it's so, so activity is definitely picking up both uh, government investment uh, and venture capital. Obviously, the big limitation here is finding the deposits, but also the hydrogen is the smallest element in the universe. It's very leaky. And um, the International Energy Agency says that, you know, these stores of hydrogen might be too scattered to be captured in a way that's economically viable. So the big question is, how do you transport it? And is there enough and concentrated enough areas to, to make it viable? And so I'm going to keep my eyes on this sector, but keep in mind it took 20 years for us to revitalize the geothermal industry, where we know a lot more about where the hot rocks are and the hydrothermal resources are. So if this is something that's feasible, it's probably decades out, but worth paying attention to. Yeah, it, hydrogen is hard to utilize. And so maybe you have a pocket of geologically available hydrogen right near an industrial user, right near a refinery, and they're happy to switch over from the polluting hydrogen they're using today. That's great. But if you don't have something like that, then you have to compress hydrogen, you have to liquefy it, uh, you have to truck it or you know build a pipeline to move it. All of that 
is expensive. And so making it is finding it is part of the, the challenge. But then how do you actually deliver it in a, in a you know, cost uh, effective way to a customer? Shalini Ramanathan is the Director of Origination at Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. A pleasure. Good to see you. Good seeing you. Thank you. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. That's it for the show. The Carbon Copy is a production of Latitude Media. It's produced and written by me. Sean Marquand is our technical director. He also mixes the show and he wrote our theme song there. You can get all our stories, our show notes, and the transcripts of this show at latitudemedia.com. Be sure to check out our cousin podcast, Catalyst with Shale Khan. We also have another show called The Latitude where we read some of our best pieces, our feature pieces. And uh, so if you want to take our, some of our journalism with you in on your podcast app, you can subscribe to The Latitude as well. Latitude Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy. Learn about their portfolio and investment strategy at preludeventures.com. And if you like what we're talking about here, spread the word on LinkedIn or X or wherever you're active on these issues. Shoot a note over to uh, a colleague if you think they should listen to this show. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks so much for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Mm-hmm.